A checkbook is a shovel. A checkbook is an injection. A checkbook is a drum of gasoline. I cannot go in the jungle and use a credit card. Doesn't happen. If I don't have it in dollars to put in somebody's hand, I don't get gasoline for the boat. I don't get medicines for the clinic. I don't get Bibles to put in the hands of children who are so hungry to read God's Word. Your checkbook is a tool. Use that tool first to keep the lights on here and then come around the world and let's do some incredible things. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. We do indeed want to welcome Ben Mathis to our pulpit this morning. Uh, I met Ben 20 years ago, as I mentioned earlier. Least. Yeah. And I uh, hadn't talked to him in a few years. Last time I called him, he was, he, I called him in the middle of the night. He was sleeping in Vietnam. And I woke him up in the middle of the night. He now lives part of a time outside of Atlanta, but he also has a house in Thailand. And I said, well, how did you end up in Thailand also? He, well, he said, I was, I was there during the Vietnam War messing with the Russians. That's all I know. He hadn't said any more. Uh, we can not take that this week. Just sit down now. Let me do my thing. Good morning. Y'all really keep somebody running. We had early church. Then they take me to the basement to talk to a big crowd of people. Then they stick you on the freight elevator. And apparently if they like your sermon, they let you out one side. If they didn't, they let you out the other side. <laughs> and apparently I made the cut. So I'm just grateful to be here. Let me tell you what I do. I'm, the found, I'm now the old man of an organization that's called Roe from Vietnam and Cambodia, Thailand, across Africa, Latin, and South America. We primarily use rivers as a way to get to people. Simple enough. Pick a river off the map, go down that river, camp out in the jungle, and ask the people that live there, what's the toughest thing about living here and what do you want to do about it? And then we make it very clear. Your country, your people, your village, your tribe, our problem. Now what's the problem and how do we address it? So because of that, you can find us doing everything from classic one-on-one -on -one evangelism, introducing Jesus for the very first time to a tribe of people, baptize folks, build a church, all the way to academic scientific research, nation building, health, education, clean water. The list is almost endless. But in every situation, the goal is the same, to help bring people closer to a transforming and sustaining alive relationship with Jesus Christ. So many of you have been helping us do that in the Dominican Republic. God bless you. Thank you so much for what you've done. To celebrate that, I've really chosen a passage of Scripture that is so uplifting. After you hear the Word this morning, you're going to be glad you came to church. We're in the 25th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. That is on page 1,542, if that helps. <coughs> Excuse me. We're going to begin in verse 31, chapter 25. Let's hear the Word of God from Matthew's Gospel. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heaven and glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He put the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry. 
and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. But then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You didn't welcome me in. I needed clothes. You didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And this is the word of the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. Didn't that make you feel great? Aren't you glad you came this morning? Yeah, not so much. I mean, if you're like me, I read this passage, and I'll be real honest with you, I think about all the things I don't do. I think about the fact that at Christmas time, when that fella is in front of the grocery store ringing the bell and he's got the big bucket, sometimes I take the long way around just so I don't have to be near the bucket. I will tell you that it irritates me to pull off the interstate and some guy's sitting there and every day, I don't know how, but miraculously, his sign gets bigger and bigger and bigger and he's more and more homeless and he wants money and sometimes I lock the door. You ever do that? That kid got arrested. You have known that child his whole life. He's in your church. Did you get in the car and just go to his parents' house and say, I have nothing to give you, I have nothing to offer you, but I need to be just with you? I can't let you be alone right now? Or did you call somebody on the phone and say, did you hear what happened? You know, if we think about the things that we do and don't do, there's not much hope, is there? I am so grateful that we love a God who loves us and is full of hope, or we'd be pretty miserable right now. So today, instead of looking at ourselves and, and all the things we don't do, I bring to you a word from, from people around the world that perhaps we would even call the least of these and what they would say to Christians just like you on a day just like this. We're going to start in a country called Bangladesh. It's over near India. When Bangladesh became a free country, it had been bombed into oblivion. There was one building left standing in the capital city. The rest of it was completely gone. And yet the people of this brand new country were so convinced and so optimistic that the world would just love Bangladesh. The first thing their government did was print posters. And the poster said, discover Bangladesh before the tourist. <laughs> this is true. Now to get ready for this, the army of Bangladesh sent army trucks into the capital city of Dhaka. They turned over cardboard boxes. They went up the drainage ditches. They rounded up 44,000 refugees. 
They drove 10 miles north of Dhaka to a flat piece of dirt less than one square mile called Tongi. They dumped 44,000 people behind a barbed wire fence. They drove away and they gave all of those people to you. Did you know that happened? They gave them to you. And the first question we have to deal with is, how, how do you get water and food for 44,000 people behind a barbed wire fence? And the answer is you can't. So if you're very young or you're very old, you will not survive. There's nothing we can do. But this is what we could do. We ran a rope right down the middle of the camp. If you're on one side, you were fed one day. If you're on the other side, you were fed the next day. About where you are, three rows back. This is burned in my head for the rest of my life. A little boy, no shirt, no shoes. He has a pair of shorts that are tattered. He can't stand. He's sitting in the dirt. And this little boy has in his hands his whole world. It is a loaf of bread this big. That's it. That little boy took that loaf of bread and he broke it. And he put his hand through the ropes and put half of it in the hands of a stranger. I, I still have that photograph and I've never gotten past that moment in my life. Do you remember the short wheelbase Ford Bronco guys that everybody liked back in the 70s, early 80s? Remember those? Dr. Johnny Miller, one of your pediatrician missionaries, bought one in South Africa and he drove it all the way to a country that is now called Congo. At the time, we called it Zaire. We used that Bronco for everything. Peggy Rambo, a missionary wife, used it to do clinics. And she would open that tailgate on the back end and she would slide a big footlocker into the Bronco. And then she'd drive off down these filthy roads through the tall elephant grass and through the jungle. And she'd come to a little clearing where we'd taken trees and split them the long way so they made benches. And she'd back the truck in to the benches and there were about 15 African women sitting on these benches. Each one is holding at least one tiny baby. Some have two. You get out of the Bronco, and to greet people in Congo is a, is a drawn-out ordeal. You go, moyo. Everybody goes, moyo. You go, malukai, malukai, malumimpe, malumimpe. And then everybody goes, eh. <laughs> and you know it's good. Then they pray, then they sing, they have a little Bible study, and then Peggy, one little baby at a time, examines each child. And she tries to say something good about each child. Some need ointment, some need immunization, some need parasitic medicines. They, they're just different things that every child needs. But she tries to love each and every child. And she said she did fine. She packed everything up, put it back in the Bronco. And then she turned around to look at these precious women. And Peggy Rambo said, we don't have enough money to buy the gasoline to get to all of these little clinics. We just don't have the money. And we've had to decide we're going to close some of these clinics. And I'm sorry, we have to close this clinic and I cannot come back. And Peggy told me she did all right. She turned around, took one last look at those horrified African mothers. And she got in the Bronco and started it and she did okay. She dropped the thing down into gear and started off down this dusty road and she did okay till she looked in the rear view mirror and running behind her truck in the dust holding her baby like a football 
is a young African woman screaming, if you leave, my baby will die. And she had to keep driving. I was in a town called Kwangju, Korea, where you have Kwangju Kidok Pyongwon. That means Kwangju, a city, Kwangju Christian Hospital. I went all the way from the top floor down into the basement. There's a little door in a small room. I opened the door, and standing in the room is this beautiful Korean nurse in her flowing robes. And standing next to her is a little boy this old, whatever that is. That's how old that kid was. They're standing there, and I just looked at him, and the administrator of the hospital said, she's not a nurse. This woman is a speech pathologist. The little boy can neither hear nor speak. She's been teaching him to speak by feeling the vibrations in his throat. And this little boy wants to say his first two public words to you. Is that okay? I said, oh, gosh, what an honor. Sure. So we all gather around. The room gets very quiet. And the little boy starts acting like a little boy. He's looking up at her and looking at us, looking at her, looking at us, looking at her, looking at us. She's looking at him and looking at us, looking at him. Looking at him. Finally, she goes, mm-hmm. And he stands very still. He takes a deep breath gets as straight as he can, puts his hand to his throat and bows and says, which is basically, how you doing, preacher? And then he just stood there, frozen. And then he started to shake and shake a little more. And then that precious child just exploded crying and he buried himself in her robes. And when he did that, she blew up crying and she's standing there holding this child. And before you knew it, we were all standing there just weeping that we'd heard those two beautiful words from that precious little boy. See the two aisles? Next time you come into this place, remember these aisles because they are as wide as the stream that goes through the middle of a little village called Fayette, Haiti. The stream is about two feet deep at the good places and, and shallow otherwise. And, and right over here, on both of these, there are four pigs who are always, those four pigs are always there. They never leave the mud. Up about 50 yards on the right, there are four dogs. And they just play all day long. And then they take a nap and get up and play. Across the stream, there are chickens who just do what chickens do, pecking along. And the stream is just literally just filled with all sorts of garbage and trash. It's very difficult to see. It smells and this is where the people of Fayette, Haiti get their drinking water. You can imagine that almost everyone is sick almost all of the time. So we go into the village and say, you know, right over there we could put a well. It'd be clean water. Everybody would be healthy. It changes everything. And people are getting excited. And then here comes the Hunang. Hunang is their word for the voodoo priest, the witch doctor. He walks up to us and he says, I control this village. This is my village. You cannot be in here. And because of protocol, we have to leave. Another witch doctor moves into the village. Witch doctor A cuts the head off of witch doctor B and goes to prison for six months. While he's in prison, a woman from that village shows up at your hospital, Hopital St. Croix. Holy Cross Hospital. She's desperately ill. We admit her to the hospital and miracles happen. This woman responds to treatment. Number one, praise the Lord. She's getting well. She's going to be okay. That's great. But more importantly, this woman renounces voodoo and gives her life to Jesus. And when that happens in Haiti, that is a huge celebration. And in the midst of all of that, here comes the voodoo priest. 
He's out of prison. He comes to the hospital. He says, that woman is from my village. I will cure that woman, release her to me. And the hospital did. He took the woman home and she died. The impact of this was incredible because everybody knew she'd come to our hospital. Everybody knew she was getting well. Everybody knew she had renounced voodoo and given her life to Jesus. Everybody knew the witch doctor said he would cure her and she died. And everybody knew that that woman was the mother of the voodoo priest. And when he couldn't save his mother's life, the people of that village gathered around him and said, well, obviously your power is broken. And if you go to Fayette, Haiti today, right over there, there's a well with five spigots of clean water. It runs all the time. It's right next door to the feeding center for the children, which is right next to their school. If you cross the stream, the pigs and the dogs and the chickens are still there. But right over there, there's a trade school for adults so they can learn how to get a real job. It's right next door to the church that's just full of people. And right over here, oh, the witch doctor still lives there. He sits in his house and he pouts. Presbyterians, can you say amen to that? Thank you. Last place is right here. When two rivers do this, the land right there is very valuable because you have traffic coming from two rivers. Cotija, Brazil sits right there. We pulled our boat up to Cotija, Brazil. I'm coming down the gangplank, going to get on the dock, and here comes the mayor. Well, you feel important. And the mayor comes down and he says, let me ask you a question. Okay, are you going to tell people about Jesus? And I said, mm-hmm, that's why we're here. You can't come into my village. Excuse me? You cannot come into this village. This village is controlled by a drug dealer. Everyone here does drugs, sells drugs. The whole community works on drugs. If you lead people to, to Jesus and you ruin his business, he will kill all of us. You cannot come into this village. And by protocol, we have to leave. The fellow next to me on my boat looked at me and said, shame, you've got to leave. He goes, I'm from Brazil. I'm coming back. See, the drug dealer was so powerful. He built himself a house almost half as big as your sanctuary, totally out of wood, two stories tall, breathtaking. Next door to it, he built a smaller house, and you go here to buy your drugs and do your drugs. It's one-stop shopping right there. They watched one afternoon when the drug dealer took a suitcase, came down the steps to the river, put the suitcase in his canoe, and headed away. That's not uncommon. That's how everybody travels anywhere. You get in a canoe and you go. He's gone for a month. Nobody thinks a thing about that. It takes a long time. He's just going to buy more drugs somewhere. One month turns into several months, turns into a year. And people are going, hmm, maybe he's not coming back. Let's move into his house. No, we better not do that. He might come back. A year turns into two years. Two years turns into four years. And one day they look down the river and here he comes. Here comes his canoe. He's in his canoe. He's got that same piece of luggage. He pulls right up to the dock at Cotija, Brazil. He puts his suitcase down. He climbs out of the canoe. He turns around to see the village. And the man who had left the village as a drug dealer four years ago came back as a Presbyterian minister. And the first thing he did, he burned down his house. He burned it down. 
The second thing he did is he burned down the drug house next door. He burned that to the ground. The third thing he did, he picked up a shovel with me and we scraped all that mess out of the way. And where there used to be a drug house, we built a Presbyterian church in Cotija, Brazil. Say amen one more time. Amen. Isn't that neat? I love stories like that. What does the world want to tell you? The world would want to say to you, Christian, look, in the name of Jesus... In the name of Jesus, just feed one other person. I'm going to feed you. Have, a, have an English muffin. In the name of Jesus, the world would say to you, look, Christians, American Christians, give to your church. Do not ever let this church worry about how to keep the lights on or the staff fed or the carpets red. Give to your church. But once you've done that, oh, realize something. A checkbook is a shovel. A checkbook is an injection. A checkbook is a drum of gasoline. I cannot go in the jungle and use a credit card. Doesn't happen. If I don't have it in dollars to put in somebody's hand, I don't get gasoline for the boat. I don't get medicines for the clinic. I don't get Bibles to put in the hands of children who are so hungry to read God's Word. Your checkbook is a tool. Use that tool first to keep the lights on here and then come around the world and let's do some incredible things. Christians, the world would say to you, have the courage to listen to somebody who's different. You might be amazed at what you hear. What that means in the church, discreetly, you look around your church sometime, you find someone who's obviously different, maybe they even talk funny, I don't know. And you walk up to that person and say, Ben told me, you can blame me. Ben told me to come up to you and say, I want to hear your story. Tell me about you. And then I'll tell you about me. And you'd just be amazed at what you might hear. The world would say to you, Christians, deal with the voodoo in your life. Deal with it. And you know what I'm talking about. I can see it in your eyes. Some of you carry a guilt and a pain that happened so long ago. Jesus doesn't have any memory of that. But when you go to bed at night, you still toss and turn. You may try to stay busy just so you don't think about that. Jesus forgave that. Some of you have habits that are going to kill you. Well, why do that? Why do that? Some of you that are young may be developing an attitude that says the world owes me. Why? Because if God can take a drug dealer and transform him into a Presbyterian minister, oh my goodness, what in the world can he do with you? Richard and I were talking. I, we, I have roots in Scotland, and I come from a, a long line of Presbyterian ministers. There are about 250 years of Presbyterian ministers in my family. Harumph, harumph. I have two sons. One of my boys is an actor and a movie director out in Hollywood. My other son, captain in the Marine Corps, infantry, did three tours in Iraq. Probably one of the greatest privileges of my life in 2006, I had the privilege of embedding with my son and his company of Marines. I went to war with my kid. I was on K-Love Radio at the time, and I went under the auspices of being a journalist so that I could broadcast radio from Iraq. I, I really did it to be close to my son. After his third tour, he came home and he said, Dad, 
God has called me into the ministry. And I, you don't want to say you're proud. For some reason, we're supposed to be afraid to be proud of our kids. Well, I was proud of my boy. I have to admit that. I was proud, and I was stomping around the house thinking, you know, 250 years of Presbyterians. Here comes little brother, going to be a preacher. It's just the great. I'm just so excited I couldn't stand it. And, and he went to seminary, and he did great. He took his ordination exams. He did all that stuff. His name is Adam. And Adam got ordained, and Adam is, you know, and it's just, it's really neat. It's, you know, there's a long history. And Adam, Adam, <clears throat> Adam. A lot of Presbyterians, oh, y'all, he's a Methodist. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I feel so much better. (laughs) When he became a second lieutenant Marine, I bought him a sword. When he became a Methodist, I bought him his robe. We're in shorts and sandals at home. We put our robes on together. You know, it's just taking pictures, just a a little historic moment. And in the midst of all that historicity, I reached in my pocket and I pulled out a great big knife. Now, in my family, that's kind of typical. I pulled out this big knife and he looked at me sort of funny. And then I took that great big knife and I cut a hole in my robe. Can you see that? Can you see? Shake your head. I cut a hole in my robe and I gave my son this piece of cloth. And I said, I want you to sew this into your robe to remind you that that you come from a long line of preachers. That, that means a lot to me. But more importantly, sew this into your robe to remind you that the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel is love. And today I would say to you in behalf of the people of the world, Christian, in the name and in the love of Jesus, feed one of the person. Give like you've never given. Have the courage to listen. Struggle with the spiritual issues in your life. Why? Because if God can transform a drug dealer into a Presbyterian, if He can transform a Marine into a Methodist of all things, oh my goodness, what in the world can He do with you? And as you grow, God bless you. You stay strong. And God bless America. Let's pray together. Father, from around the world, people we will never meet have such wisdom to share with us. We don't have to try to feed everybody, but if if I fed one and you fed one, then we've just fed two. We have so much compared to the world. Oh, Lord, pry it away from us and let us experience the joy of giving. You know, I would sit and listen, Lord, but I'm just so busy. No, I'm not. Slow me down and let me listen. Father, I'm grateful that you stand beside even me as I wrestle with the things in my heart. Just as you stand beside all of us, don't let us be alone. Help us instead to grow closer to the joy and the freedom that's ours in Jesus. Transform us just as you did a drug dealer and a Marine. Transform us to be the people you would have us to be in a world that so desperately needs us. For we ask this prayer in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Hi, I'm Brian Stewart, pastor of Evangelism and Missions here at First Presbyterian. Have you been shocked and saddened as I have about the recent news of persecution of Christians in Iraq? What you may not know is there are actually five Presbyterian churches in Iraq sister churches of ours who are resilient in their witness to Jesus Christ in the face of unimaginable events. 
Christian refugees and others fleeing the persecution in northern Iraq have been streaming into one of these Presbyterian churches, the one in Kirkuk, and the pastor and the people of that church are now currently sheltering about 12 families in their pews, Sunday school classrooms, and hallways. They are also reaching out with other Christian churches in the region to hundreds of refugees, and they need our help. Funds that are collected will be used to buy emergency relief supplies such as food, water, and clothing through the Outreach Foundation, our partner in the region. Please mark your checks for Iraq Relief. For more information and updates about our partnership with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, go to theoutreachfoundation.org and click on Solidarity with Christians in Iraq.